Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another episode of Continuum, the IBC podcast. Today's guest is Chris Seidensticker. Chris, thanks. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. No, we're really excited. I'm really excited about this. I've I've talked to you on a, a few other occasions. We've traded emails. And while I know a little about you, selfishly, I'm looking forward to learning more. And I think our listeners are really going to appreciate uh, the insights that you share with us. So first, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I, I know you're now out in the Bay Area, but where did you grow up? What, what got you to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm originally from the coast of Mississippi, uh, what I lovingly call God's country. Um, and as a really funny aside, I... Um, you know, there, the, there are these new text uh, AI bots, open AI that have uh, been developed and they're shockingly good and almost scarily good. And so I went on one of these text AI bots and I said, uh, write me a poem about Gulfport, Mississippi being God's country. And it wrote this poem that was not just like static type stuff. It was like specific to the region um, and the people and things that made them like unique or who they are. It was it was shocking. It was almost scary, but complete aside and sorry. But anyway, so I'm from Gulfport, Mississippi. My parents uh, are not. My dad is from Ohio and uh, he had gone to Notre Dame um, and his daddy had gone to Notre Dame. His daddy was captain of Notre Dame's first golf team back in like 1928. Interesting. Um, and so even though I grew up in Gulf Mississippi, I'd always wanted to go to Notre Dame. Um, and my pop was really, um, casual about it. You know, my brother did not go there. Um, but it was all I ever wanted to do. And growing up and being in high school, I'm like, I want to go to Notre Dame, major in finance, um, and focus on international business. And so that's, that's, um, sort of what led me to the school. I mean, I applied to other schools, but once I got in, it was done and done. And then once I got there, I discovered what was called at the time the Notre Dame Council on International Business Development. And I knew I wanted to focus on international business. And in particular for me, I was thinking, this is back in the 90s, early 90s. I was thinking, well, gosh, you know, if I'm going to do international business, I should focus on a particular region. And if I'm going to focus on a particular region, you know, which one will be, I should choose a region of the world that I think is going to be just like really booming um, for the next 30 years. And I thought, okay, well, that looks like Southeast Asia or Latin America. And I thought about those two regions. I was like, gosh, Latin America has two languages, Spanish and Portuguese. And Southeast Asia obviously has a ton. So I was like, I'm going to go to Notre Dame and focus on Latin America. And so, yeah, once I got there, I discovered the NDCIBD, uh, which is much longer than the SIBC, um, but got really involved in them. I, I love the mission of peace through commerce, this concept that as you know, a community, we can develop bonds between communities and that community could be countries or, or could literally be my little town or some other little town. Economic ties that become so strong that um, waging war, engaging in other sorts of conflict aren't worth it economically. Like I'm this finance person and so I'm thinking about all this in terms of numbers and dollars. And so I love that sort of mission of, the, of, the, of what, has become, you know, the IBC. Um, and so I was on the board of directors. I think I was like director of operations. After my junior year, I had an internship via 
the SIBC to St. Petersburg, Russia in 1994, where I worked for Honeywell. Um, and it was, an, I mean, an incredible opportunity. I lived with a family at the end of one of the metro lines. Um, I learned the very basics of how to be polite in Russian um, and how to read the alphabet. And just, I mean, it was just such an incredible opportunity. It was really my first time overseas for all intents and purposes. When I graduated, I, um, again, really wanted to find a company that would allow me to move internationally. And, and again, per, particularly Latin America. And so I got a job as a finance person um, with Baxter Healthcare and ended up working with Baxter for five years. My first um, year and change, I was in, you know, Deerfield, north of Chicago, um, which is their headquarters, helping them do like uh, financial process reengineering, which is what it was called at the time. Um, of basically evaluating everything that this big Fortune 500 company was doing from a finance perspective. Now, I was entry level and, you know, um, obviously didn't have a ton of uh, or any responsibility, but um, was it was a rotational program that Baxter had where you'd spend, you know, six months to a year in different rotations. And their goal was to move you around the company and let you see a bunch of different things. My goal was get me overseas. So I did that first gig in, you know, north of Chicago and was very, very clear with everybody at the company. I want to go overseas and I want to focus in Latin America. But the first place they sent me, and I'm not complaining, was to Ireland. And so I got to work on the West Coast, not Dublin, on the West Coast of Ireland in Castlebar, um, about 30, 45 minutes from the coast from uh, the Pacific uh, Ocean or excuse me, the Atlantic Ocean coast. And I was working in their renal was like their diabetes um, products group and was, you know, working on like the renal group's budget and things like that. Um, and it was a great, it was a really cool opportunity um, in terms of, um, you know, from a work experience, it was great. But from a personal experience, it was really incredible because I had a car and every weekend I would drive to a different part of the country and spend the weekend there in a hostel. And I saw the entire country in six months. Um, my elementary school principal, I went to a Catholic school, and my elementary school principal was a nun, uh, an Irish nun who had retired back to Ireland. So I got to go see her and spend the weekend with them, um, which was just like mind-blowing, really, to me. Excellent. Um, like one of my best memories. So after I was in Ireland again, Latin America, Latin America, Latin America. So um, it worked out. I got down, I got sent down to Fort Lauderdale, which was Baxter's headquarters for all of inter, what they called intercontinental, which was Latin America plus Australia and New Zealand. And so I did, you know, they were consolidating the results from all of those regions. So I was working on doing the financial planning and analysis of budgeting for that entire region. And I told my manager there, I said, hey, you know, this is great, but at the end of this rotation, I want to go in country. I started learning Spanish when I was there. I was taking um, Spanish classes. I got myself a tutor and I started learning Spanish while I was in Fort Lauderdale. And after about a year and change, 15 months, you know, I kept pestering my manager. I said, hey, I'd like to go to Argentina. I would like to go to Argentina. Argentina would be cool. Can I, can I go there? And he said, uh, yeah, we'll send you in country, but not to Argentina. We're going to send you to Brazil. And I said, wait, 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 you don't understand. They speak Portuguese there. <laughs> I'm learning Spanish, help me. But I said, all right, let's go, let's do it. So I moved to Brazil, um, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And um, most of the folks there did not speak um, English or very good English within the office. So I was basically owning Baxter Brazil's budget. And most of my teammates did not speak English or not, not very well. So I said, all right, 
I'm going to be forced to learn Portuguese. So I'll take an hour and a half of Portuguese a week in span of, uh, uh, with a tutor and three hours of Spanish a week with a tutor. And then, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and learn both. So I was there for a year and a half. And again, I owned the budget for Baxter Brazil while I was there. This was 98, 99. So all of 1998 and the first half of 1999. Very beginning of 1999, Brazil went through a big devaluation, currency devaluation. And I was like, oh my gosh, what does this mean for Baxter? So I did a bunch of analysis, pulled together a bunch of projects on what it meant for us and what the impact would be, which was just for me, just like to have like seen something and done something proactively and then been acknowledged for it um, felt really, really good. And after a year and a half, I actually am now was then um, pretty darn fluent, very fluent in both Portuguese and Spanish. Um, at that stage of my career, I'd been at Baxter for five years. Um, and by the way, I'm not stopping a pause. And um, John, do you need me to stop pause or anything? No, you're great. If I have any questions, I'm going to interrupt you. You're great. All right. All right. I'm telling my story. You're getting the long version. You're getting the long version. No, this is perfect. At that point in time, I've been there for five years. I want to go get my MBA. And I was thinking to myself that I might want to do a career change. I'd always kind of thought about asset management or investment banking, really asset management. And I thought I wanted to do um, something like that. Um, I did have an opportunity with Baxter. They asked me to move to Poland to help out on some um, M&A integration work. But I was just really focused on going back to get my MBA. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so they said, okay, fine. Why don't you come back to Chicago and help us run our Latin American corporate audit group? So I moved back to Chicago for Baxter. Their internal corporate audit group was not sort of financial audit as much as like operational. And so I really got an opportunity to get to dive into like operational improvement, very much kind of like a consulting role. And, and it was sort of, you know, financially sort of motivated focus, but there was a lot of going to visit operational facilities, warehouses, manufacturing facilities, and understanding the cycles, documenting those cycles, making recommendations for improvement. So I spent for um, you know the next 15 months, I probably spent 80% of my time in Latin America. Um, and I'd go down and do like two-week engagements. And it was really neat because you know it was a two-week engagement. So I always had a weekend in the middle. And the, this was really a nine to five job. So I had the weekends free to explore wherever I went. So I had a couple of trips to Colombia, to Venezuela, to Chile, to Argentina, back to Brazil. Excellent. Um, just awesome sort of exposure to all of Latin America, um, which I loved. Um, but during that time period, I did, I, I did apply to MBA schools. And for me, I was like, look, I want to go to an MBA school that is going to be serious. Um, there are... You know, were a lot of schools at the time that I felt as I looked at them were mainly focused on the network more than the learning. Um, I also said to myself, I'm going to go to the best school I can get into. Um, and I feel like I got real fortunate and got into the University of Chicago, which also happened to be a very serious business school that folks talked about as being very um, numbers oriented. You know, they've got a, a ton of like um, economics, Nobel Prize winners or whatever. Like yeah, Nobel Prize winners. Really well respected. So I felt... Super fortunate. And um, so, yeah, so I went to University of Chicago, MBA, and I, I thought I would do asset management. And, um, you know, the way business school works is you kind of figure out your internship within, you know, that, you know, it's only a two year program, right? So you figure out your internship pretty quick and pretty quickly you figure out you zero in on what you're going to do. Well, I got an offer um, to go work for UBS 
Warburg um, in their investment banking group rather than asset management. But it sounded interesting to me, and it was our Latin American telecom group. Uh, so I took that job. I was I was super interested in it, and I got there, and I realized for me and sort of where I was in my career and my life, it was typical investment banking. You know, you're working 14, 16 hour days, oftentimes six days a week, living in New York, uh, doing a number of trips down to Latin America. But I mean, it was really neat. But at the time, this was 2001, 2002, there was a recession and the bank was spending a lot of time pitching business and not winning it. So I spent three months basically doing PowerPoint presentations. And I decided that wasn't wasn't something I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to have a bigger impact. and so I, I got an offer um, to go work for UBS and turned it down and kind of went back to the drawing board. And here's a point, John, that I, I don't know that I, um, maybe if I had a, to do all over again, maybe I would have done a different choice. But I, I ended up getting a job at the software company out in the Bay Area. I wasn't looking to move out to the Bay. Um, and I certainly wasn't looking necessarily to go work for a software company and do FP&A again. But it was a role I got, and it was sort of a weird place to be in because I'd gotten a good internship and I'd gotten an offer, and I turned it down. And so I kind of had to go back to the drawing board. So, so Chris, I want, I want to interrupt and just ask you, like, you know, looking back, you know, would you take the same path again? And the second, like, follow-up to that is, what did you learn from that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, my experience at Baxter, I don't think I'd change a thing. I mean, I got this incredible opportunity to see a large part of the world um, and to do some really great traveling as part of my work. Like, you know, it's it's pretty rare to get that kind of an opportunity and, and to get paid for it and to develop a skill set. I, I think so much of what I learned, particularly in Brazil, was to be autonomous and proactive and to find opportunities and to, when, when you see things that have to get done, i.e., our entire company is going to be significantly negatively impacted by this currency devaluation, jump into it and try and solve the problem. Um, And so I learned a lot of that. You know, when I, looking back on it, should I have taken that job in Poland? Gosh, sometimes I wonder. That would have been an incredible experience, but I'm super thrilled that I got to go to the University of Chicago. Uh, uh, I learned way more than I ever expected. You know, I was a finance major in undergrad. I had done, I'd done finance for five years. I didn't expect to learn a ton, but I learned a massive amount. was super, super impressed with the curriculum at Chicago. And I was happy that I did do UBS Warburg um, and, and explore. Um, and in retrospect, the way, and, you know, we'll get into the rest of my career post-business school. But now looking back on it, I'm, I'm real grateful. I'm real grateful. So I, I don't think, have it, you know, if I'd had it all over to do again, that I would do necessarily anything different. So you move out to the Bay Area. Yep. Jump into software and in, in yeah. the midst of a recession in 0102. And where did that lead? So the company was Siebel Systems, which is a CRM company, customer relationship management. And they were, this is, you know, 2002, they were still an on premise software company which I don't even think those exist anymore, but basically you had to have a server in your office to run the software. Like it all resided on your own computer for all intents and purposes. Um, and so at the time they were completely getting destroyed by Salesforce. Who was right? 
your one of your first big SaaS solutions where right. you didn't have any hardware, right? You all you access the entire platform on the internet. And so the company was getting completely destroyed when I joined. Um, when I joined, they wanted me to do straight up, you know, FP&A, but I said, no, I'd, I'd really like to do corporate development, M&A work. So they allowed me to split my time between corp dev and, and FP&A, but they were getting beat up. So they were not doing much of the way of acquisitions. I got, you know, I think lucky because I got to work on a few, but it was not what I'd hoped. And then the other thing that I realized when I got there was, you know, Baxter was a Fortune 500 company. It had 30, 40, 50,000 employees. I mean, talk about cog in a wheel. That is all you could ever be, really. And so I thought going to Siebel and they had two or 5,000 people at the time. I, I thought, gosh, I'll be able to do a ton at this company. It's so small. And I got there and I realized, oh, my gosh, 2,000 people is still huge. And I said, you know what? I need to go find a startup which was the exact wrong time to go find a startup because it was that first dot-com bubble. So I, I, um, I, I even went to a dot-com bubble bursting party and got to meet MC Hammer at it, like just weird sort of thing. But anyway, I, I said, but I'm going to, I didn't let it deter me. I started reading all the tech press and I would look for companies that sounded interesting to me that had just raised money and I would cold email the CEO. And say, hey, I'm running finance at this company. Let me come run. I mean, I'm doing FP&A at this company. Let me come run finance for you. And I basically spent six months sending emails, hours a day, just cold emails. I didn't have a network and LinkedIn did not exist. Right. So I just I shot a ton of cold emails. Um, and I just was very disciplined and systematic about it as much as possible. Um, and I had... You know, I maybe got even a 5%, 10% even response rate, you know, like 90% of my emails went unanswered. But I had a cardiac device um, CEO respond and say, hey, come on out, let's talk. And for some reason, he trusted me and thought that I knew how to run finance for a 20-person startup, which I did not know how to run finance for a 20-person startup. Um, they had nobody full-time. Um, you know, it was a teeny tiny company, but I joined them. They had just done their Series B fundraise, and I ended up running finance for them for five years. Started like as a senior finance manager, got promoted to VP finance or something like that over that five-year period, um, and it was incredible. You know, we went from twenty people to something like fifty or seventy-five. We were selling globally. We went from you know three or four million in revenue to twenty. Um, but the biggest thing was we um, had an opportunity to buy a company about 15 times our size. So we, um, one, uh, one of our strategic investors had just, uh, um, Boston Scientific had just bought um, Medtronic or somebody like that, and they had a cardiac device division. We said, hey, you know, um, you just bought this big company. Why don't you just go ahead and buy us? You're already a strategic investor. And they said, no, you know, we're, we actually, we were over levered. We need to actually get rid of some of our assets. So we're definitely not going to like buy you guys. And we said, hey, if you're not going to buy us, let us buy your cardiac device division. And they laughed at us. And we got our board together and we went out and secured soft commitments for $500 million in equity and another two fifty in debt. And we went back to them with the term sheet and said, no, we're serious. We're going to do this. And I was partnered with my CEO and our head of technology. And we spent six months pursuing that acquisition. Um, and it was classic, you know, Notre Dame, all, all of us Catholics will get this analogy. It was a classic uh, David versus Goliath. And the target management team 
hated it, did not want to be bought by us, this tiny little company. But we were, we were persistent. We, we spent, as I said, we spent six months pursuing the acquisition and it ended up, you know, they kept chucking wrenches in the gears and one of them blew the whole deal up. So we, um, we did not get to successfully pursue it. And then I looked at where we were as a business and realized we were going to run out of cash because we'd not been focused on the business. So led the efforts to unfortunately do a reduction in force, but we were able to extend the cash runway about six months, got the company recapitalized and back on its feet and saved it from bankruptcy. At that stage, I'd been there five years. I had a company that had, I had a, a friend, just a buddy who had founded a headset company that had like 10 people. And he said, we need a, we need a VP finance. Do you want to come join? And I said, yes, sir, I do. So I, I joined them. They were like a million and a half in revenue or something. Um, was with them for two and a half years um, and got promoted to CFO. And we sold the company. This was in like 2011. So we sold the company to Skull Candy yeah. that does action adventure headphones. Um, and at that stage, I'd been a tech startup CFO for like seven or eight years. And I'm like, huh, I've learned some things. Um, I've made a ton of mistakes. And I've learned from those mistakes and I figured out how to fix them. Um, and I love this really early stage, you know, uh, company building um, that I've been doing. I want to keep doing it. And it's really hard to find a gig as a full-time CFO at that stage. They don't need somebody full-time. So I became a consulting CFO and I've been doing that for the last 12 or 13 years. Um, and I work primarily with seed stage through series A or B companies, helping management teams build their companies. Um, helping them raise money, helping them scale, helping them determine uh, go-to-market strategies and pricing and organizational structure and systems and process and procedure, the whole thing. Uh, so yeah, that, that brings us to today. Uh, and I'm still doing it and have today, you know, a handful of companies that helping them build. So, so looking back on the past, I'm just going to say rough number, 25 years since you got out of undergrad. Yeah. You know, what would you say today, Chris, that, that you're passionate about? Like what, what drives you from a business perspective? I don't want to say, you know, would get you out of bed in the morning, but just kind of big picture, you know, what are you passionate about? I, I love helping to build companies. I, I really love helping to build companies. I love partnering with management teams um, and helping them think through all the opportunities, um, you know, helping them avoid pitfalls as much as possible. Um, yeah. And then, you know, like uh, over the last five to seven years, I've gotten really involved in cryptocurrency, blockchain, Web3, um, because I think there's a huge opportunity there for, from my perspective and what I, I'm really passionate about, and it goes back to Gulfport, Mississippi, is sort of what's now called the creator economy. Um, artists and people, you know, musicians. Um, and I think Web3 offers a ton of promise for them to better monetize their art. And so between kind of company building and looking for opportunities to help build out that creator economy and leveraging Web3 to do so, it's sort of where my head is today and what gets me excited. So I, this is going to be a, a, a two-stage question. The first one is, is going to be kind of simple that if you had the chance today to talk to yourself when you were in college, what would you say? This is going to sound weird or maybe really overly cocky, but I, like I, I do, um, I have mentored SIBC students, a, a number of them over the last three, four or five years. And it's sort of the same thing, which is have confidence in yourself and tell people you can do stuff even when you don't know how to do it and then figure out how to do it. Ask all the questions 
be confident and say, hey, I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to go own it. Um, and have confidence to make all the mistakes and have confidence to then fix the mistakes and ask all the questions and do all the research um, and put yourself out there. Because it's, it's all I've done my entire career is put myself out there and take chances and and try to do things and know that if I if I fail, I'll just work my tail off to fix it. So in this career that you've had so far that you've carved out, talk about mistakes and, and kind of, again, similar to. You know, you're talking to a, a current, un, current undergrad. Yeah. You know, mistakes. I, I think humility is one of the greatest things we all have. And while I know you a little bit, I think you're a very, very humble person. You know, what are some mistakes that, that you've made that others can learn from, that I can learn from? Yeah, it's, it's actually one of my favorite interview questions when I'm, when I'm hiring someone. It's like, tell me about your mistakes and how you fixed them. Um, so a very like straightforward one when I, you know, I told you that um, when I joined that cardiac device company, that little startup, I'd never run finance for a company before. I could do a budget, I could do a financial model. But when you run finance for a little startup, you have to own their corporate insurance. Um, you have to own like all the taxes and tax filings. You have to, um, oftentimes you are in charge of all the HR, all the people ops, all the hiring. Um, all the salary and the benefits and things like that. And so you sort of have a broad purview and I didn't know how to do any of it. And like for corporate insurance in particular, I made all these mistakes and almost lost us our corporate insurance. We were going to be completely uninsured because of my mistakes. And I, you know, went back to our broker and said, I'm really sorry. I screwed this up. How do I fix it? And did all the things I could to, to try and resolve the issue and got them, got them resolved. Um, you know, taxes are complex as hell. I've made tax errors more times than I can count and have had to go to CEOs and go, right, we missed this tax filing. We now owe this penalty and interest. And I'm sorry, but we've learned from it. And we'll, we'll put in place process and procedure to ensure that it'll never happen again. Um, and, you know, all of it, I've, I've owned it. And I've just said, look, this has been my fault. And um, here's what I'm going to do to fix it as much as I can. And here's what I'm going to do to ensure that it doesn't happen in the future. So those are big ones. In terms of like career mistakes, you know, the one thing as I look back, because what, you know, you go, well, what are you doing now? I mean, I, uh, or what do you want to do now? Because my career's not done. I, I've spent really a long, a, a decent portion of the last 10, 15 years trying to break into venture capital. So I'm, I'm, you know, I would love to sort of like what they call switch sides, go, go from the corporate side to the VC side. And, um, you know, I think if I had it all over again, I probably would have spent even more of my time really focused on it and not just focus on the networking portion of it, but the learning and the executing. So, you know, I've, I've spent so much time reading about it these days and I know I need to put together like an investment thesis and all this stuff. And I've never done it. And the time to have done it would have been 10, 15 years ago. It's never too late. Um, a lot more now. So I would have done that. What's that? It's never too late. It's never too late. So I know I need to do it, but I got to prioritize it. And, um, you know, like these days, I'm fully engaged with my current companies and they're my priority. Um, so like, I don't have time right now, but, uh, and I got a family. I got two awesome kids and they're also my priority. So like, you know, um, I'm trying to figure it all out. But like it's, I guess the other way to say it is, I think I knew what I wanted to do. And I think that I knew what needed to get done, but I didn't force a discipline upon myself to do it. 
And a way I could have tactically done it would have been to force myself to allocate time on my calendar, hours, a block of time, right, each week to developing an investment thesis as an example. And I never did that. And, you know, I do talk to folks. I'm like, be very systematic in everything that you do. And I failed in being systematic and disciplined. Well, you say failure. I mean, my interpretation is it's more, okay, I'm honest, I'm candid, I understand what I did, and I still have opportunities to fix it, which, which kind of leads to a, a topic I wanted to talk about with you in leadership. And I think you've got an interesting, you should have an interesting view on leadership from the fact that you go in and you've seen multiple companies going back to your first five years out of undergrad. And more importantly, I think now, you know, the most recent decade in kind of working with a number of small companies. So what do you see? Are there any common traits that you see in leaders that are positive? Um, and also possibly not to do on the negative, but is there any one you know, negative, one weakness that you see um, amongst leaders that our listeners can learn from? Yeah. You know, I, one, one, of my, one of my companies that I had, and I call them companies, not clients, because I'm fully vested when I work with the company. Um, client feels too soft and not committed. So one of my companies was a meal delivery marketplace called Choose. Um, and the founder was a first-time founder, young woman who was incredibly confident in her approach to management. And I learned so much from her. I mean, she was, I don't know, 10, 15 years younger than me. I learned so much from her in terms of management um, and communication and transparency. And I mean, I, I, she's, she's written a bunch about it. Um, she's just, I, I really, really respect her. But her whole thing was about having this sort of radical candor and incredible transparency and focus on feedback. And I've taken everything I've learned from her to every one of my other companies and management teams and pushed them to be more transparent and to be more proactive in their feedback with their teams. And so I respect the heck out of her and have tried ever since then to instill in my teams that level of transparency. And it's like, look, you know, we're going to we're going to as some very explicit examples. Before every meeting, when we start a meeting, we're going to ask everybody. She she phrased it as a a um, as a what does she call it? Like a green, red, yellow check in at the beginning of the meeting to assess how everybody was just mentally. And you don't need to necessarily say what that thing is that's causing you to feel yellow, but you know your dog bit you in the toe this morning. You're just sort of angry, right? And that's going to influence how you engage in that meeting at that point in time. And it's really helpful to be able to tell people, you know what, I've had a crap day. It isn't going to be you. It ain't going to be what you're saying. But if you hear just me not responding like you would hope, okay, I want you to know I've just got other things going on. And having that transparency and that candor. And it was like incredible the difference in the quality of the meetings when you knew that, right? And then we'd end every meeting with feedback. Tell me what, you know, do, do we think this meeting went well? What could we have done better? You know, what should we have focused on differently? And then we take it to the next one. So um, and then we would do that just in terms of, you know, performance reviews and everything else. Like, let's not do performance reviews once every six months. 
Let's do it every week. Let's have a one-on-one check-in and we'll spend the last 10 minutes of every check-in or five minutes, whatever it needs to be, just on overall performance of that person for both of us over the last week. Hey, you know, did, any, did I do anything last week that I could have done differently? Um, so that that that's, um, and I think it just, and then when you have that transparency across an organization and and they took it to an incredible extent, like they had full transparency on salaries. And then if you had full transparency on salaries, it was also, how do I get to the next level? So full transparency on how you get to the next level, full transparency and cash position for the company. You know, I work, none of my startups make money. They're all, you know, mm. within six to 12 months of running out of cash. So having that transparency and organizational level with your team, with everybody in the company, and you do it every month or you do it, you know, maybe even every quarter, but it's like, here's our financials company and we have six months in cash and we're going to go out and fundraise and this is what it's going to look like. And you worry because you're like, oh my gosh, we've just told everybody that we're running out of cash, right? That's the, that's a negative or, or the risk. The upside is you go, we're going out and raising money. Here's the one, two, three things that we're going to do that will ensure that we're going to be successful. Right. And you say it at the company level and then each department manager know, then thinks through and works through what do, what can my team do to contribute to it? And all of a sudden you begin to get your entire team locked in. Into ensuring that company's success. And I was just it's, it's incredible. The difference It's a really scary thing to do. If, if the company's ever done it. But once it's gone through a couple of cycles and you see the commitment of everybody on that team because they realize they're all working for the exact same thing and that they can have an influence on it, it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, so I was super impressed with that. Um, in terms of leaders that have rubbed me the wrong way, it's, it's literally been ones that have done the opposite, right? They've not been transparent. They've not trusted their team to execute um, or to fix problems. Those, those um, or those are just simply unethical that want to cut corners that, you know, want to play games with the numbers. The old joke used to be, you know, what's a good accountant? And a good accountant is one that can, that can, you know, can you know, figure out how to make two plus two equals five. And it's just, I don't know, 16 years of Catholic school. That's not how, <laughs> not how I am, not how I was raised, not, not what Notre Dame taught me. Uh, so I'm, you know, diametrically opposed to that. Um, and so leaders that like try to cut corners or play games, it, yeah, not. I, I've left companies where I've had CEOs do that. And I just am like, well, this is a bad fit. I'm not doing this. Chris, what do you do kind of big picture to continue to, to grow and ensure that you develop as a leader? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I told you about um, that CEO. I am completely open to being told that I'm wrong and I'm completely open to learning new things. And I, you know, I try to read as much as I can. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't, I, I, um, I don't, I don't read books really. I spend most of my time reading like tech press and reading like, um, you know, what people have done that have worked and, and haven't, you know, and what hasn't worked. Um, and I'm, I'm always, I mean, like by definition, what I do, I'm basically learning constantly because all my companies are going through crazy things all the time. You know, I, I was actually, I interviewed someone today for one of my companies uh, for a senior accounting manager role. And they said, you know, can you, um, can you give me what a typical day will look like? I'm like, no, this is a startup. No matter what you're doing this week, it's going to be different next week and you're going to learn something new. 
Um, and that's actually, again, one of the reasons why I love startups. Everything is different and I'm learning something every single day. And uh, yeah, so I, I look for opportunities to expose myself to new things, to new companies, to new technologies. I mean, I told you about that AI bot um, earlier in our conversation. I'm like, just thinking through how that thing even works. Uh, it's blowing my mind. So big picture, look back on, on your life to date. What do you think it takes to have a great and meaningful life? I mean, we talked a lot about business. You mentioned you, know, you have a family. You know, how do they coexist? I mean, how, how do you ensure that, that your life is meaningful and fantastic? Um, that's a tough one. You know, um, I, um, I mean, uh, from a family perspective, right? Like I'm just, you know, my kids are, I, I, I want to ensure that, you know, that there's, they're, they're good people and that they're giving and that they're, they're always looking for opportunities to help from a, you know, professional perspective. You know, I'm, I'm looking for opportunities to help companies that are, positively influencing society as much as possible. I mean, one of my companies today is a um, marketplace for substitute teachers. And um, it because I've got school-age kids, it happens to be pretty impactful for me and really, really important to help them succeed. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've got a good, clear, concise answer on this one. I'm still trying to figure it out myself and I'm still trying to figure out how I can be more impactful in my professional career. And, you know, honestly, I think that's a lot of it a lot of how I'm thinking about me trying to shift into venture capital, which is like, how can I find the people and companies that are looking to do the most good? And again, my personal passion is around like helping people that are creating art continue to be able to do their art. And, um, you know, if I can, if I can figure out a way to fund them, um, I, I would love to do it. But Ultimately, I think it's, um, you know, if I end up doing what I do today for the rest of my career, I just hope that I've helped companies be as successful as possible. And I hope, at, you know, at this stage, I've mentored as many management teams as I can. You know, I've done this for so long that oftentimes when I work with first time founders, um, I spend a lot of time coaching them and advising them on everything. So I just, I just hope folks feel like I've, um, I've helped them. All right. So you thought that question was hard. This is going to be my last question, which I think would, you're going to have to give some thought to. Okay. What are you most proud of in your life? I mean, the easy answer is my kid. That's the easy answer. Because, uh, I mean, so I got, a, I got a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I think they're incredible and the best things ever. And they, you know, like I'm just super, super proud of them. Like, I'd love to say, well, you know, I've had a huge exit. I haven't. I think, um, I don't know. I, um, I'm proud of feeling like I've tried to do good. I don't know. Um, I, I feel very, very strongly about my personal morals and ethics. And um, I'm proud they've never wavered. And um, I think it's set a good example for my kids, I hope. And... You know, I hope I've influenced folks um, as a result. That's great. Chris, that is fantastic. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. That's a hard no, and that's great. I, and I know that would, uh, I, I know family's important to you. It's just, it's interesting to ask that question and to see and to listen to your response. So thank you. And, and really, I wanted to thank you for your time today. 
I know you've got a bunch of things going on uh, work-wise. I, I truly appreciate you taking the time uh, for this and hopefully you enjoyed it in as much as I did. I, I love it. I mean, look, um, I mean, gosh, I, I love Notre Dame, but I love the IBC. Um, you know, I, uh, we didn't talk about it, but I was president of the IBC for a year or two. Right. Uh, at this stage, it was like 15 years ago. And actually, you know what we didn't talk about, but we should have, because I feel like I should have done a way better job as president. I feel like I could have been more proactive. I could feel like I could have succeeded more or gotten more things done. Um, you know, we got some things done at the time, but I feel like I could have set, I feel like I could have set the organization up to be even more successful than it currently is. And I'm so ecstatic that they brought you on, John, to help the organization continue to do the good in the world that it's, it's been set out to do and, it, and that, it, that is its mission. So I, um, I'm super supportive of you guys and uh, want to be able to continue to support you in any way that I can. So thank you, John, for, for what you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. And I think from my perspective, I was going to say this after we're finished, but I'll say it here for everyone to hear. Um, I'd really like to come back maybe in six months, a year and do part two with you and talk about more specifically IBC, because I think at that point, we're going to have some more wins under our belt and for you to come back and kind of reflect as well as since you're still keeping abreast of what we're doing, you know, grab your insights, which would be very, very welcome. Awesome. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Chris, thank you. I certainly appreciate your time today. I wish you continued success. And as we're looking at the holidays coming up, hope you have great holidays. Yeah, you too. I'm looking forward to it. Spoil those kids. Thanks, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening today to Continuum, the IBC's podcast series. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And for more information about the IBC, visit our website at ouribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C.com. Thanks. 